So on behalf of Chess, I'd like to welcome you to the October 2014 podcast. I'm Kyle Hogarth from the University of Chicago, editor of the podcast section. Thank you for joining us today for a terrific conversation about a topic that each of us face in our clinics on a regular basis. My first guest today, Dr. Richard Irwin, professor of medicine from the Division of Pulmonary, Allergy, and Critical Care Medicine at UMass Memorial Medical Center in Worcester, Massachusetts. He's also the editor-in-chief of CHEST, and he's the chair for the cough guidelines. He's here today to discuss the online first article, Overview to the Management of Cough, CHEST Guideline and Expert Panel Report. Richard, thanks for joining us. My pleasure. Also joining us today is Dr. Tamara Pringsheim who's a neurologist, who has an MS in clinical epidemiology as well, and is an assistant professor with the Department of Clinical Neurosciences, Psychiatry, Pediatrics, and Community Health Sciences, and is on the Faculty of Medicine at the University of Calgary in Alberta, Canada. Tomorrow, thank you for joining us as well. Thank you for the invitation. So, um, Richard and Tamara, go, uh, let's, let's, let's jump right in. What, what was the purpose and the goal of this new set of guidelines? Um, why did we need an update? Well, they hadn't been updated. The cough guidelines um, hadn't been updated since 2006. Um, And uh, the um, guideline oversight committee, the American College of Chess Physicians, that um, really um, ends up uh, assessing whether or not there's a need to update guidelines and goes goes ahead and schedule them, decided that, uh, gee, there had been enough uh, new information that had surfaced uh, that it was time to, to update the 2006 guidelines. Um, when we went ahead and did that, um, uh, I was invited to be the chair, um, and um, in deciding how we were going to go about and do that, uh, we uh, ended up, uh, this being the Guideline Oversight Committee and I, uh, deciding on um, the panelists uh, who we would recommend to be on the committee. And then, um, as you know, with um, uh, the rules and regulations uh, that uh, really the Institute of Medicine have promulgated, that it's really important to try to get uh, non-conflicted uh, panelists. And so um, a number of international experts in a variety of different areas were suggested, the Guideline Oversight Committee, um, actually ended up approving 53 uh, individuals. Um, and then uh, we uh, actually had a number of conference calls. Uh, it was really challenging because we had people in Australia um, uh, as uh, well as um, in Asia, the United Kingdom, and also uh, the uh, western part of Canada uh, to get on these calls. And we sat down and decided uh, what we thought that we needed to do. We decided that we needed to not only review the science, um, but also um, we wanted to be able to, when there wasn't a lot of good evidence, to be able to come up with practical um, advice for for clinicians. Um, And so um, we chose uh, topics that were um, actually listed in the table in the article that you had just mentioned. We decided that we would cover 37 topics, pretty much what we had covered in 2006, um, but that we would uh, obviously do it in a different way. So as um, the methods for how you do trustworthy guidelines have evolved, the American College of Chess Physicians uh, uh, had methodologies that uh, coincide with that, and we decided that obviously to advance the field, we had to do better than we did in 2006. So every right, and that's what I was hoping. 
I'm sorry, that's what I was hoping you and Tamara could expand upon, because on one level, this was an update, but on another level, you both took a, a brand new approach, and Tamara's got a lot of expertise in this this methodology, and, and, and that's what I'm, I'm, I'm really fascinated by, that in a way, even though it was an update, it actually, you guys were almost starting from scratch. So we did start from scratch, and um, we decided for each of the 37 topics, um, uh, whenever there, uh, other than the introduction, uh, introductory ones and background information like anatomy and physiology, we yeah. would actually do systematic reviews. Um, and then from the systematic reviews of each of the topics, uh, we would then uh, come up with either recommendations or suggestions. So um, I think at this point, I, I think it probably would be helpful since Tamara is really an expert in, in this area to um, you know, have her say, uh, you know, something about what qualifies as really a good systematic review that really is the basis for coming up with trustworthy guidelines. Yeah, so, you know, I think that guidelines are really essential uh, for cough when you look at both the burden uh, of the disorder with respect to both prevalence and cost and also the presence of variation in practice. Uh, this tells us that physicians need evidence-based recommendations that they can follow when they're confronted with patients with cough in their office. Um, the process of going through a systematic review is fairly well established, and um, the methodology that um, that this committee is following is very much in line with the gold standard, which is the Cochrane methodology. Um, and uh, these reviews are a lot of work. Um, they involve casting a first, well, first developing your, your clinical question quite precisely in terms of what your clinical population is, what types of interventions you're interested in, what comparators you want to, you want to uh, what, com what types of comparisons you want to make, and what outcomes you're interested in. And once this clinical question is very well defined, you go about casting a very wide net in order to find the research literature uh, to support different types of interventions in the field. Now, um, in order to do that, we search several databases to find articles, and all abstracts are reviewed in duplicate by at least two uh, individuals with expertise, either methodologic expertise or content expertise, in order to find the, the type of studies that you're looking for. Once you decide which studies you want to include, each study needs to be uh, evaluated with respect to its methodologic quality. Um, not all trials are well done, and um, we know that many of the studies we have for many therapies are biased. So we go through an extensive evaluation to uh, look uh, for potential biases for every research study. This results in a final grade being given for each different type of intervention with respect to the quality of evidence that we have. And uh, this grading is considered when we, um, when we come up with an actionable recommendation for clinicians. So the goal is, you know, is, the goal is for the clinician to 
have a recommendation for a practice that is firmly grounded in the evidence and for them to know explicitly uh, what the quality of the evidence is that supports that recommendation. So one of the things that in the introduction to the guidelines, there's a discussion between the, different, the difference between a recommendation and a suggestion. And I think on one level that seems obvious, but would you be able to give our listeners uh, a, a better understanding as they're reviewing these guidelines on, on what is being said as a recommendation versus a suggestion? So, so with respect to, I'm sorry, go ahead, Tamara. No, no, you please go, Richard. Um, the, a, a very... If the evidence is really good, um, and uh, we can talk about what the grades mean afterwards, but but if if the committee thinks that the recommendation is really, I mean, if the evidence is really good, then you can make a recommendation that is um, stronger than what we would refer to as a suggestion. Um, right. A suggestion could actually, uh, when there was decent evidence, but it was weak. Um, you could make a suggestion and grade it, um, such as, um, you know, if we thought that uh, patients would have more benefit than harm from doing something, but um, there were just um, observational studies um, okay. and, and actually just some retrospective studies, you might give it a grade of 1C. So one um, actually um, establishes that there's more benefit than there is harm. So, um, you know, a two would mean that they were equal or there was more harm, or you could um, actually recommend that you not do something. But if the benefit outweighed the harm, you would give it, let's say, a grade one. And then if you had multi-center randomized control trials and there were multiple ones, you would say that it was a grade 1A, but a grade 1C would be, uh, weaker, and you probably would say, well, it was so weak that I'm just going to make a suggestion rather than a recommendation. A consensus um, uh, statement um, would would not make a recommendation. Uh, so if you did a modified Delphi methodology uh, and you met the rules for actually accepting a statement, you would actually grade it as uh, CB, which would be consensus-based. You'd never use the term recommendation. You would use the term suggestion. I mean, so those are the um, ACCP ways of, uh, of grading, and that's the difference between, uh, let's say, a, a guideline um, and uh, a consensus statement. What, what we did in this guideline in, in, that we're putting together over time, so we're we're leaning heavily on systematic reviews, um, and this document um, actually is the first ACCP document that's coming out that's going to be referred to as a hybrid document, where we can make recommendations based upon really good evidence following the methodologies of clinical practice guideline development, or um, we could actually um, come up with suggestions uh, as you would um, in, you know, a consensus-based um, voting process that you had. And then the third thing that, so systematic reviews, a hybrid document, and then the cost guideline uh, and expert panel report um, is also following what the ACCP is now doing with guidelines to keep them up to date more quickly. Uh, we're following what they refer to as a living guideline model. Right. So as soon as an article is done in a certain area, we publish it. So we don't wait 
let's say, for the 37 topics that are hopefully going to be covered over about four years for the cough guideline panel uh, to be done before we publish it. And so, and every year, the uh, evidence in the particular topic from which there was uh, an article will be reviewed by the existing cough panel to see whether or not we needed to update that thing. That's fantastic. So it won't be waiting until uh, another eight to ten years to pass in, <laughs> in phenomenon. It will be a living, breathing document that's going to evolve as the literature evolves. Correct. That's absolutely correct. Now, I think all, all of our listeners, obviously, um, I think you, you can't remotely be practicing any amount of medicine, especially in, a, in any amount of pulmonary medicine, and not have encountered some level of, of cough as the chief complaint. But the document does talk, and, and I'd kind of just, you know, we can briefly go through some of the numbers. How huge is this problem? I mean, beyond our, each of ours personalized anecdotal experience of, of how often you see it, but what are some of the numbers we have? Well, I, I mean, it turns out uh, over the past two decades, um, if we looked at data that came out of um, initially the Health and Human Services uh, um, uh, Department uh, in the United States, but now the, the government actually, it, it comes out of something else. But in the United States, we keep track of ambulatory visits, uh, and it turns out that um, uh, cough is the single most common complaint for which patients in the United States uh, actually uh, seek medical care uh, in the ambulatory setting from a primary care physician. Now, this includes, uh, this actually uh, combines both pediatrics, uh, adolescent, and adult medicine. Um, the only other country that has uh, similar data turns out to be Australia, and they found the same information. Um, the, the information that comes out in Australia and the United States, for which I just, you know, uh, of which I just spoke, and actually is cough of undifferentiated um, duration, so it not only includes somebody who might cough, have cough from cancer, but it also includes people who have cough from the common cold. Okay. But there are other data from uh, Great Britain and uh, Japan, for instance, uh, so prospective surveys that have shown that uh, in Japan um, that the prevalence of chronic cough in the general population is just over 10%, and in Great Britain it's 12%. So, it, I mean, it, it, it turns out from a complaint standpoint to be just an enormous problem. And then in that same article that you're referring to, we actually um, uh, asked the Nielsen company that um, does um, um, uh, surveying uh, for primarily uh, related to uh, what consumers are spending um, we were able to determine that uh, for over-the-counter cough medications, people in the United States uh, um, in um, uh, the 52-week period of time that ended in December of 2013 um, actually had spent $6.8 billion on medications that, um, for the most part, have never been shown to actually have any role to, to help you. But, and, and there are millions and millions of dollars that are spent in Australia and in Canada and Great Britain. Uh, but it's interesting, um, when I got those data, I actually looked at the populations of each of those countries. And while uh, the Australians um, in that same period of time spent $88 million and the Canadians $101 million and in Great Britain $156 million, None of those countries come close to what the United States public spends on over-the-counter cough medications. 
Wow. And I think the other point is that some of these preparations can actually be causing people harm. And uh, when you have a situation where, uh, you know, consumers, there, there is a market for these, for these preparations and consumers are buying them, you know, the, the advice of physicians is, is really essential uh, so that harm is not caused uh, to individuals uh, out of, you know, desperation to treat their cough. I think that's an extremely valid point. And, I mean, we've seen that, obviously, with the concern of over-the-counter meds, and in particular the pediatric population. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, Ann Chang, who is, comes from Australia and uh, is a pediatrician, um, uh, she uh, brought to my attention the fact that uh, over-the-counter cough medications, I believe, is the uh, second most common um, uh, medication for which children less than two years of age in Australia die from, from overdoses. And the American Academy of Pediatrics um, uh, actually uh, came out in 2006 when we came out in 2006 with our last guidelines saying that uh, please do not give these medications, as Tamara was, um, uh, you know, saying, to um, uh, to children. Um, I, I just recently had an opportunity to see a couple of articles where um, parents, even though these medicines are not recommended uh, because they won't probably help, but they can hurt, like they're recommended not to do it, um, parents still go ahead and, uh, and, and do that. So uh, it's an important area. So let's, let's go through now the table, the spectrum of the topics uh, for this third edition. I mean, obviously, we, we don't have the time to go through the entire uh, list, but um, tell me what the areas that, I guess, for lack of a better word, where are you? Where are you most? Like, I guess proud might be the worst. Might be the word, or what? What are the areas that you think uh, represent um, uh, maybe a, a, the most change from 2006 guidelines? Uh, that that if someone said, "Well, I'm not going to read this entire document, but um, I need to go read a couple areas for my chronic cough evaluations that come through my clinic," you know, where where would I direct them? So. I, I mean, I would say that the thing that we are going to be most proud about is the fact that every single topic that specifically um, addresses a clinical problem, um, there will be either recommendations or suggestions based upon systematic reviews. So I, we, we are going to be most, most proud of that. The, the, of the introductory things, uh, there's a topic called intervention fidelity and in the use of cough guidelines. And so we are just finishing that. Cynthia French and I are actually uh, just finishing um, that manuscript, and we'll be submitting it to uh, the entire panel for their comments before we submit it to the uh, ACCP. But um, there's, as I'm sure you're aware, Kyle, so, so there is a variability in success in taking care of patients with chronic cough that actually has ranged from 100% to 64%. And just about all of us who have taken care of patients with cough, when you read the literature, suggests that, well, maybe some of the variability isn't that the patients have a hypersensitive cough reflex, um, but their cough may be unexplained because people are actually, the, the investigators are reporting um, a workup of patients that, not, that, that is actually not true what they said that they really have done because they haven't documented it adequately, or they've gone ahead gotcha. and done their own protocols. 
And so this intervention fidelity paper is essentially going to say that the literature um, actually has to improve. And going forward, um, and the committee's already voted on this, going to be making recommendations that uh, the uh, key areas in doing the right kind of research, even in observational studies, um, you know, we're going to recommend that going forward that people follow that and how to follow that. But one of the other things um, that, um, and, and the reason why Tamara is on the call, that we are actually uh, pretty proud of is um, in the area of psychogenic hapic and tick cough. And so a systematic review on this has already been published, and Tamara played a huge role in getting us on track with terms. Um, and um, we're uh, now just drafting uh, the guideline and consensus statement that will, and, uh, and suggestions that will come out of that systematic review. So, Tamara, um, I, you know, I, I, I learned a great deal when, when you came on, not only with respect to systematic reviews and, um, you know, the methodologies on how to go about uh, doing the reviews and then writing clinical practice guidelines. But um, maybe you could just share um, with everybody um, what uh, you taught me and the others about the term, you know, the terms like habit cough uh, sure, is sure. It, and, and psychogenic cough and things like that. Sure. Well, um, I was really uh, excited when Richard contacted me. Um, as I mean, I'm a neurologist, and my one of my areas of expertise is movement disorders. So I run a clinic for um, kids and adults who have tics. Um, and you know, Richard had asked me to get involved in in, in the guideline uh, specifically on uh, habit cough, tic cough, and psychogenic cough. And I thought it was really interesting that people were talking about habit cough and my first question was you know what what is a habit cough because this isn't um this isn't a term that's used in 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 neurology or psychiatry anymore so if you look at the um DSM-5 uh there's no mention of habit disorders in the DSM-5 uh previous version uh, versions of the diagnostic and statistical manual for mental disorders uh, did include an umbrella term, habit disorders, to refer to a number of disorders, including tics, Tourette syndrome, trichotillomania, which is pulling your hair out, uh, complex motor stereotypies, which are repetitive rhythmic movements and skin picking. Uh, but in the newest version of the DSM, uh, you know, the term habit disorders has really been abandoned. Um, uh, and so, you know, in our recommendations with respect to this topic, we uh, have recommended that the term uh, habit uh, cough be abandoned because really the definition and features of habit cough are really captured in the term tick cough. You know, habit cough and tick cough are essentially the same thing. Um, and uh, for that reason, uh, we made this, uh, this suggestion. Now, um, the the other uh, thing that evolved was the conceptualization of what is a psychogenic cough. Um, and this is something that is evolving in my own field uh, of neurology is you know, how we classify, how we should be calling psychogenic disorders. So, you know, when somebody has a non-organic uh, cause for neurological symptoms, uh, there are many different terms that are used, including psychogenic, uh, functional, uh, and conversion. 
Now, uh, conversion uh, applies strictly to the setting in which the symptoms have a uh, quasi-neurological uh, flavor. Uh, so it's, it's different uh, for cough. Um, uh, so, you know, we we talk about the current methodology or, the, sorry, the current terminology uh, for for someone in whom uh, there is a chronic cough that where no uh, medical cause um, can be found um, uh, for it, and this would generally be thought of as an illness anxiety disorder, as a, as opposed to um, conversion. Uh, so, in our paper, we we really we really tackle the idea of terms and and what we should be calling different things. And then does it expand on ultimately management or diagnostics, you know, and not just the terminology, but how to best go about if, if I'm clinically evaluating somebody and this is where the workup it seems to be heading, how to further refine that and then hopefully manage that? Um, so unfortunately, because we have so much problem, so, such a great problem with terminology, um, and many of the studies are very old, it's uh, very difficult to draw conclusions from the literature on how to manage these types of calls. Um, certain, certainly in individuals who have a tick disorder, who have a tick cough, the approach would be to treat them. Uh, as we treat individuals with tick disorders. So there are current uh, Canadian guidelines on the management of ticks, as well as um, European guidelines and American guidelines on the treatment of ticks. So in the situation where someone has a demonstrated tick cough, um, it, it makes logical sense that um, the approach would be to uh, treat the person for their ticks. Um, Coughing ticks are certainly one of the most common uh, vocal ticks that we see in individuals with tick disorders. Um, and I can tell you just as a clinician uh, that in, in my patients that have coughing ticks, they respond just as well to medication uh, as all their other ticks. So there's no evidence to suggest that um, a coughing tick wouldn't respond to the uh, therapy we use for all ticks. Um, yeah. For psychogenic coughs, you know, I, I think that it's it's more difficult. I, I, you know, as the person who uh, has seen individuals not with psychogenic cough but with psychogenic movement disorders, um, it, it can be very, very difficult to treat patients with these types of disorders. Um, you know, if if the individual, um, um, it, usually uh, when it comes down to this, the uh, the cough is uh, longstanding. Uh, they've had it usually for, or the the problem has been going on for years without a diagnosis. And um, and the controversy that's going on in our literature, in the neurology literature right now, is that you know perhaps psychogenic is not the best word. Perhaps functional is should is a better word. That it's a disorder of function. That there's been some change, uh, which uh, is perpetuating um, uh, uh, or propagating the the disorder. And that we and that and often in these patients we're not able to find a psychological problem. We know that there's there's no disease, um, but we're we're not a, and you know, we look for an underlying depression, an underlying anxiety disorder, but often it's it's not there. Um, well, so it clearly has a stigma. The title, that word, has a stigma. Yes, yes, it does. It does. 
Um, and so, um, you know, it'll be interesting to see how, how it evolves, um, both in the field of neurology and when it comes to psychogenic cough, whether um, uh, the field goes the same way as, as the change that's occurring in the neurological literature. I can tell you that, so, so what we got out of the systematic review, in addition to trying to straighten out terms, um, was um, that, uh, so we had suggested in 2006 that the criteria that pediatricians primarily were using for s diagnosing psychogenic cough in children um, uh, actually aren't always there in the reports where people end up getting treated in the pediatric literature. Um, and there's reason to believe uh, in one prospective study from adults and also the sleep literature that, um, that, that those criteria that we used actually uh, probably should not be used to either diagnose or exclude um, an entity that we've been referring to as psychogenic cough. So in the pediatric literature, if the cough has a barking or honking quality to it, honking like the noise you'd hear from a Canada goose, um, that the pediatricians would say, like, well, if you just then combine the presence of those qualities, those characteristics, with not waking up in the middle of the night from coughing, then the child almost certainly has uh, psychogenic cough and then should get, uh, you know, some conditioning uh, therapy, some drugs and things like that. Um, but we, are go we, we now have better data to say you shouldn't use those terms, um, better data than from the systematic review than we had in 2006. Um, and so um, the sleep literature basically says, and there are patients who have bad coughing from active tuberculosis, who so once they go to, once you're able to go to sleep, the coughing markedly decreases because the cough center goes to sleep. Um, mm -hmm. So um, I, I think that will be something that's helpful uh, to guide people in, you know, managing patients who, you think have anxiety or, you know, maybe anxiety and depression. Um, and, and people who have a chronic cough actually have anxiety and depression, yeah. especially when nobody can figure out what's wrong with them. Yeah. So you just can't use those, um, uh, you know, psychological problems uh, to help you make the diagnosis. So, so I think those things and the fact that we're hopefully going to be able to identify more people with tick disorders where there really is good medicines. Um, mm -hmm. I, I think I think we're going to be able to to you know be of help to uh, to people who are going to read the uh, the guideline that's going to come out of that systematic review. Yeah. Well, and I was thinking about this, Richard, because you know cough um, obviously first typically is arising in the primary care office, and and then. It seems to me that at least within the U.S., the, the next step from a referral perspective, unless there's been an obvious cause, is that it arrives in a pulmonary uh, respirology uh, office. And uh, what I was struck by from the guidelines, you know, it, it really highlighted the, the many different uh, areas of expertise that, that are involved in cough. You know, you had obviously pulmonary on, in, in the guideline committee in internal medicine and family medicine, but allergy, psychology, neurology, uh, speech pathology, ENT, otolaryngology, GI, gerontology, ID, nursing, anatomy specialist, phys I mean, everybody, thoracic oncology, palliative care. You know, it's a, it's, it really highlights also that, that and, and when we look at all the topics that are being addressed within the guidelines, um, that 
not that infrequently, uh, those of us that are uh, being seeing patients in consultation for this for this chief complaint ought to consider um, invite, uh, consulting some of our other colleagues within these various fields to help us out. I mean, absolutely. So, I mean, again, you said to me, so, like, what are we most proud of? I mean, getting the right people involved to help us. So, I mean, you, you had already said that, but, I, I mean, I, I'd just like to emphasize right. it. So for psychogenic habit tick-off, we have psychologists, we have psychiatrists, and we have neurologists, um, and those are not, um, you, you know, those, the, the areas, those areas of expertise and people who are expert in those areas, um, you, you know, uh, we aren't necessarily working with them side by side, but on this cough uh, guideline, we are. We, we also have somebody who speaks uh, for uh, for the patients, uh, so we have a layperson. Correct. Um, and we also have the FDA, uh, you know, repre- uh, being represented on the panel. Well, that's got to be very important, especially from the therapeutic intervention side. Right. Um, what else should we address? Um, as just we've been talking for a while, and I want to be respectful of both your times. Um, what else? Uh, because obviously it's a huge topic. On one level, we could address everything for hours, but uh, at the same time, what, what have we missed? What have we not uh, jumped into to, to uh, further entice our listeners? I, I mean, I think from from my standpoint, um, I would just. Um, Uh, reassure people that the topics that were listed uh, in the table uh, are many um, and uh, that we're working hard to to make them happen. Before 2014 um, uh, will end, uh, we will have uh, published uh, five um, uh, of the topics in the introductory matter, and and I can tell you right now that uh, we have a variety of groups working on uh, 12 um, other topics that um, you know we're we're hoping will move along so that they will be published in 2015. Um, and so I, you know, I just I just want people to know that it's a um, a project that is uh, you know uh, being worked on. It's in process. Uh, and we're going to get things out as quickly as we possibly can. Tomorrow, do you have anything to add? Um, no, I, I mean, I, I think this is a really uh, ambitious and great project. Um, I uh, work with two other American guideline committees, the American Academy of Neurology and the American Headache Society. Um, and, uh, you know, I, I really want to uh, commend uh, Richard Irwin. And, um, you know, he is he is a force in the field of pulmonology, um, you know, taking on this huge topic and uh, assembling the team around him to get the work done. I, I, I find it so impressive, the energy he has uh, to move this project forward. Um, so I think the field of pulmonology is lucky to have Richard Irwin. Oh, thank you very much. I'll, def- I'll definitely agree with that statement. Uh, you won't hear an argument from me. <laughs> you, you actually... But I'm but I'm required to say that because I work for Richard. So. <laughs> <laughs> oh, Richard's an amazing guy. Well, and so are you. I I mean, it's uh, I can't tell you how much I've learned from Tamara. So uh, you're, ne- you're never well, too you're never too old to learn, Kyle. Wait, but but I think and I think but see that that right there is probably the best plug for these guidelines because there it is. Um, an international renowned expert in cough learned a ton more about 
cough in a whole different area by sitting side by side with an expert who has a completely different perspective on this. And I think that's maybe the best plug for these guidelines because it's just that. It is all the different perspectives and expertise in one room to guide those of us that are at the front line seeing these patients. Hmm. Well, I think Richard's very generous with his praise. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I can't can't thank you guys enough for your time. I really appreciate it. I know everybody's insanely busy, and so thank you so much uh, for yet another great podcast. I really appreciate it. Yeah, well, thank you. You did a great job uh, sharing this. (laughs) Thanks so much, you guys. Do you guys have a great day? Goodbye. You too.